You and I have been studying the Watergate. I'm sure you think it's been months. It has been a long time, but this is a very important gate. It's a crucial gate for us to understand. So today we are going to see what's happening that they experience revival. Because all of us want to experience revival in our own heart. Our church also, but in our own heart first. We all need to experience it. And Nehemiah and Ezra are going to tell the people because they're going to find them weeping and mourning. And they say, stop, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so we're going to delve into that and dig into it. We know that God's word is sufficient, correct? We know it makes an impact in our lives if we will allow it. This can change me. It can change you if you will get into the word and allow it. Now, just uh, so we stay in context here, you and I have spent probably, I don't know, six lessons or so already in finding things that are critical for us to understand the Watergate and what it's all about. We found out, first of all, what day of the month is very significant to God. The first day of the month. And we find out that the Watergate revival is going to start convening on day one of the seventh month. We also found out that the Nethanim come into play here at the Watergate because they're, the chop, they're chopping the wood and they're hauling the water. And God took these pagan Gentiles because they called upon him and he brought them near and they get to live very close to his dwelling place. And boy, he's done that for you and I. He has drawn us near. And then we found out Ezra, who was born in pagan Babylon, God took him and used him, and he put a love in Ezra for God's word. Remember, he's a scribe. He copied it over and over. I, I just wonder how many copies he made. Because those scribes made lots of copies because it had to be spread throughout the community. So Ezra is very instrumental. And then he's going to bring the word of God because the people haven't heard it for a long time. So if they're not hearing it, what's happening to their spiritual growth? It's zip. And they're in sad shape. And if you remember, in the very first part of Nehemiah 8, what did they ask Ezra to do? Bring this word and read it to us. They're hungry for it. That is a clue for revival. That's one of the first steps. Now, another thing that is significant that we must see, all three of the fall feast, we have the Feast of Trumpets, we have Yom Kippur on day 10, and we have Tabernacles from day 15 to 21. We have all three of these feasts in one month. And that's what we see in chapter 8, you see all three feasts. I'd never seen that before till I started studying at this time. We're going to see all three of these feasts take place in chapter 8 and it starts on day 1 of the 7th month these three feasts have yet to be fulfilled the spring feasts are done but these three feasts are in what month 7 month and 7 is the number of completion so when this starts the feast of trumpets the real feast of trumpets will be the second coming of Jesus Christ and you are then entering God's final years to deal with mankind before we go into eternity. 
And that's what this is all about when you see it prophetically. The trumpets, his second coming, then he is going, the, the nation of Israel, aren't they going to be mourning and grieving because they realize they are the ones, this was our Messiah when he comes back. And then they're going to celebrate and go into his kingdom, which is Feast of Tabernacles. You have all of that in Nehemiah 8 in one month. This is God's final thousand years of dealing with mankind before we go into eternity. Now, if that doesn't float your boat, I need to find something else that will. Because when I saw this, it was thrilling. His last thousand years of dealing with man. Because I believe he's dealing with man for a certain number of years. And then we go into eternity. Chapter 8 of Nehemiah. You have Ezra and Nehemiah. We're at the water gate. And every feast is right here that they're celebrating. Now, this seventh month also has different themes. We've got three feasts. They each have a different theme. So I gave you this list last week, and we have these words. These are the themes for the month, and you will see them in this order. Because Feast of Trumpets is about gathering and judgment. And at the second coming of Jesus Christ, when that trumpet sounds and he comes to make uh, judgment and war and then set up his kingdom. It's gonna be, he's going to be gathering and he's going to do judgment, if you know the book of Revelation. Now, then they're going to go in to afflict your soul. They're going to repent. This is the nation of Israel. When they realize who they have crucified, this is our Messiah. And they will afflict their soul and repent. And then what happens he starts the rebuilding, the cleansing, the restoration, the renewal, the reviving, the refreshing. And we're rejoicing because we're going into the kingdom that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isn't that awesome? Right here in Nehemiah 8. And you've probably read it and thought, I don't understand that at all. Right? <laughs> okay. I'm guilty too in years past. So you start digging in and you see all that's just in those 18 verses, 18 verses. Now, last week, we found some keys for revival that we found here in Nehemiah 8. First of all, before you can have revival, you've got to have a strong emphasis, and this has to be the priority, the number one thing used in revival. And then you've got to have devoted teachers that will teach the Word of God. And, you know, a lot of times... You know, I love to hear stories and everything as much as anybody else. But when we're short on time, you want to hear God's word. Have it applied in your life. Then the people had reverence for the word of God. They had not seen it before, and as soon as he held it up, what did they do? They stood in reverence. Because this is God's word speaking to us. And they were so hungry for it. And in revival... Now, if I just started reading to you, but you didn't understand it, is it going to have much effect on you? No. You need to understand. So for revival, the people have to understand the Word of God. So here's Ezra. God's going to use him. He's the scribe. And the book of the law to them, and then he opened the book, and he began to explain what he was reading. And the Levitical priests were also out among, because we have an audience of probably about 50,000 people or more. 
and they don't understand it. So he would read some, and as I kind of picture it, then they would explain that, because you've got all these people that need to understand. So he's explaining the book of the law. No eloquent, sensational sermon. Boy, most of us would get up and leave or fall asleep. It was straight from the scriptures for hours. Oh, that we had a hunger to hear God's word. They had a united congregation that was honoring the scriptures, and they said, we're going to devote half a day, five to six hours, him reading it, it being explained to me, and him teaching it, and they said, will you do this again tomorrow, and again the next day, and again the next day? What a hunger. So they stood there, and they're listening. They grew exciting, and the word came alive in all of them. And they, the word was working in them effectually. Day by day, verse 18, this is the last verse of chapter 8. From the first day until the last, because they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, he read from the book of the law of God. From the first day to the last day. And they stood there. And the word of God did its work in them. That's why you're going to have revival here at this water gate. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul told them, he said, I thank God continually because when you received, Paul was teaching, right, as he went around and preaching the gospel to all the different cities. He said, what you heard me say, you accepted it. This isn't Paul's word. This isn't just Paul. This is the word of God that he's telling us. So they received it that way, and then it will work effectively in you. So true, true revival will never take place in me, this church, or any church, or any of you, till you have an all-consuming hunger to hear God's word. And if it, if it convicts you, so be it. And you obey it, you respond to it. That's what needs to happen for revival. Now, I grew up, not my pastor particularly, but when we had revivals, how many of you grew up in a hellfire damnation? <laughs> oh, many of you heard it. Okay. Okay. Now, but even a fiery preacher cannot stir up a complacent congregation if they're not hungry to hear God's truth. Yeah. They'll be asleep, looking at their watch, thinking about what they're going to do, wondering when the football game's going to start and who's going to win. You know, all of these other things are on your mind. So it doesn't matter how eloquent or fiery the person is that's preaching or teaching if you don't have the hunger to hear God's word. So he's going to tell them in Nehemiah 8, he's going to say in, by verse 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so we are also told in the book of Philippians, we are to rejoice how often? Always. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice in the Lord always. And this joy of the Lord is going to be my strength to live this Christian life. So I have a question. Is it true in my life that it's the joy of the Lord is my strength in every circumstance of my life? We've got to look at this in context because we can flippantly say, oh yeah, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Well, let's put you in a harsh circumstance 
and see if it's true. That's what we have to look at today. Because it's true, when life is a bowl of cherries, and thank God we have some of those days when it just seems like everything's okay, you know. But the older I get, the fewer of those I'm finding. <laughs> Are you all with me on that? <laughs> okay. But when everything's going well, we can say, boy, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Oh, but what happens when we have hard circumstances come in our life? When spiritual complacency sticks to every inch of me. I'm down, I'm discouraged, I don't even have the desire to open this and get in it. I'm complacent. I'm like Laodicea. That church that's lukewarm, God says, I want to spit you out of my mouth. You've allowed maybe some kind of sin. You have a root of bitterness. You've got some resentment. You've got something, some envy, some jealousy. You've got stuff going on in your heart, and it overtakes you for weeks, maybe days and months. And it mocks you. What strength do you really have? You know, when you get down like that and discouraged, you're not anxious to get into the Word. When the joy of the Lord, it just seems impossible in my life. I remember that over how many years now? Let's see. It was 10 years, and she's been home almost 7. 17 years or so ago. Boy, that didn't even seem possible. And the joy of the Lord feels impossible when you have a gut-wrenching experience and circumstance in your life. So let's go to court. If we went to court and you were on trial and you're in a harsh circumstance, would there be evidence that the joy of the Lord is not your strength? Ooh. I should have worn steel-toed shoes today. Is there evidence in my life that the joy of the Lord is not really my strength because of the way I'm reacting to the circumstances in my life? So, the failure or lack of faith. We say we have faith and believe God, right? Yeah, that wasn't very strong. Because what is the scripture in the New Testament? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. See, I understand that scripture more and more. So the failure or lack of faith, because we get worried, we get down, we get discouraged. Where's my faith that God is going to work or he, that he's got me in this for a reason? There's always a reason. And it forces us to face this question squarely, is the joy of the Lord truly my strength? Because if it is, I would not be acting like this in my circumstance. Are we commanded to rejoice always? We are. And so the psalmist even says in 119, 162, I rejoice at your word as one who can find a great treasure. Is this book full of treasure? Yes, but you need to go treasure hunting. And you will find them because there are many treasures in this book. In a couple of weeks, I'm planning on doing a lesson on the handprint of God in this book. And show us some things that I didn't even know till about 20 years ago. And it's remarkable what is in here where God leaves his handprint. Be a great lesson. But today, we're going, it's like new treasure. It's hiding in an old package. And the answer is the joy of the Lord, my strength. We're going to look, it's hidden in plain sight in Nehemiah 8. Waiting for you and me to discover it in 18 verses. 
So, when we are born again, what part of us is born again? Our spirit. It's the spirit that is born again. Because when Adam and Eve, were they a body, soul, and spirit? Yes. And when they sinned, what part of them died? The spirit. It's the spirit that connects with God. That's how we communicate with God. Spirit, spirit. Okay, so when I'm born physically, and I'm a little child growing up, I have a soul, right? My soul is my mind, will, and emotions. So this is my personality. This is the part of me that sins. This is the part of me, my personality, that you know. And I have a body. But my spirit, until I'm born again, my spirit does not communicate with God. So when I'm born again, my spirit then awakens and I am born again. Now my soul is going to, my body will have a new body someday, correct? And we all say amen. Okay, but in the meantime, what is the part of me now that is being saved in this life till I die? It's your soul. It's your mind, will, and emotions because Adam and Eve sinned, okay, and they, the spirit, but the next day they kept on sinning, right? They kept on sinning. It's the soul. That's where we make decisions. My will, my uh, emotions, and my uh, mind. So to understand God's word, that's why they were so intent. We've got to go out and explain this to them. If they don't understand it, it won't affect them. So you have to understand God's word, and that affects my mind. That's the part of me it affects. Now, they, they're going to rejoice in it. And when I'm rejoicing in something, it's affecting my emotions, correct? Okay, then they're going to obey it, and that's my will. So when I truly understand this, this word will affect my soul. And it will be changing my soul, my mind, my will, my emotions. Everybody understand that? Because this is going through the rest of the lesson. What this is affecting. It's not really affecting my spirit so much because it's born again. And it's not affecting the body because it's going to get glorified. But right now, this is sanctification. And for me to be sanctified, it's got to affect my mind, my emotions, and my will. And that's what this will do. Now, Nehemiah 8, verse 9 and 10. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and all the Levites are out teaching the people, and they said, This day is holy. This day. Now, where are they? They're standing at the water gate. And they're hearing the word of God. Right? And they say, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn and don't weep. For all the people are weeping when they heard the words of the law. Now, should the law, the words, bring sorrow to us because it exposes our sin? But they said, this day's holy, and you shouldn't keep mourning and weeping. Verse 10, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy all the choice food and the sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to the Lord. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, keep this in context. All right? Now, the Levites then go through the crowd, and they say, be still. 
This day is holy. Don't be grieved. Sometimes when we hear the word of God, it brings conviction and we can grieve over the sin in our life and how we have neglected it, how we have failed him over and over. They said, don't be grieved. And verse 12 says, okay, the people went away. They're going to go eat, drink, send portions, and celebrate. Oh, they're getting ready to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's after the day of affliction and the day of atonement where I've been mourning. Okay? Because they understood the words that had been made known to them. We are going to see that they gathered, feast of trumpets. They're going to mourn and grieve. That's day of atonement, day 10. And now they're going to be ready to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. All three feasts in chapter 8. So what's the sequence of bringing revival to the people? The word of God will convict. The word of God cleanses. And then we're ready to celebrate. Right? Okay, now he's going to give them the joy and the strength is because they have now been restored to be God's people. He says, Ezra speaking, who is he talking to? This remnant that spent all this time in Babylon and they're back in Israel now and returned to Judah and they've been working on the city, they've got the temple, but remember the wall and the gates were still burned. So this is the group of people that he is talking to. So you and I need to go back. We're going to set a little background for what is in their mind and why the Word of God affects them like it does. This group of people, had they had a marriage covenant with God? Yes, they are considered, the nation of Israel is considered the wife of Jehovah God. So let's go back. Abraham's descendants became a slave in Egypt, and they were mistreated, correct? Some of their children were even uh, killed. Now, God rescued them, correct? After so many years, he came and he rescued them. They went through the Red Sea, and now they are at Mount Sinai. And he's going to make a covenant. And you should know all of this. You should practically know this passage by heart. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and he says, I brought you from Egypt out of bondage, I saved you, rescued you, to bring you right here to me. And he said, I want you to be my special people. And he said, if you will obey me and heed the words of my commandments, he said, I'm going to make you a special people, and you are going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Is that what he ordained and purposed for the nation of Israel? And they knew it almost in black and white, because they heard him say it. And the words were given from God to Moses to tell the people. But what happens after a few years? We go to Hosea and Gomer. And this is, the, this is where they become guilty of spiritual adultery. She goes after worthless lovers, remember? And Gomer had to go buy her back. I mean, what a beautiful picture. But they were guilty. We have a problem because they rejected and they broke their covenant with God centuries God's mercy he's patient he's pleading with them he warns them warning after warning but they did not heed the warnings right and so he's going to now send them into exile and it's all because of spiritual adultery so they go into exile they're over in Babylon now it's severe in its brutality you want to see how severe go read Habakkuk 1 
because he gives Habakkuk a vision of the Chaldeans that are going to come upon him. It's burned into our minds. Who are we? We are this group of exiled people. They lose their identity of who they really are. Who are we? We don't have a land. Because who's in my land now? All those ites. They're over there. And the enemy has, you know, they, they've squandered the land and they have claimed it for themselves now. We don't have a temple. How do we relate to God? Is our special relationship, because isn't all of this supposed to have been passed down from generation to generation? So they should have known. But now, who are we? We're just these captives being mistreated in Babylon. But they finally get to start going back, and they're going to rebuild their city, but it's in waste and rubble. Many of us have had to rebuild our lives with a lot of waste and rubble when we come back. Nehemiah gathered the people. He gathered Ezra the scribe. He begins reading this book to them that they have not heard. They haven't heard it in a long time. But they begin to understand it with their mind. So is part of their soul being affected? Yes, because our soul is our mind, our emotions, and our will. So the mind first is being affected. He says, they read from the book, from the law of God with interpretation. They gave the sense to it, so the people understood what he was saying. That's step one for your soul. Now, part B, we got to renew our vows in the rubble of life. This is how I felt when Laura told me she was going to become a transgender. I felt like I've got to start, I mean, it was gut-wrenching. And where did I start with God? In humility. Absolute surrender. I was broken. This is what's happening with my, my child. She's 25 years old. And this is what she's doing now. And so I had to come to a point, God, I don't know how to fix this. I don't have a plan. And I'm sure he was standing over there. He said, finally. Finally, you're willing to turn your whole life, your whole being over to me. Because you try to control. You think all my activity is going to be pleasing to him. No, that's not so pleasing. He wanted me at the dung gate. And so he's had to bring something in my, in my life to put me there. And you start rebuilding now and renewing your vows in the rubble of life. Their sacred promises they were going to make. They made them in love and deep commitments this time. So they gather to hear. They hear all the promises that were made centuries earlier. And they're going to hear about the commitments that constituted, this is who we are as a people. Because he's going to read to them that passage at Mount Sinai. Here's what I meant to do with you. Here's what I purpose to do with you. Their relationship to their God. Can you imagine a congregation of about 50,000? They're standing for hours. They're listening to him read for five to six hours straight. And they're hungry. And he begins telling them about creation. He begins telling them about Noah and the ark of Abraham and Sarah, of Joseph and his brothers. They're hearing all this stuff. The Egyptian captivity, they hear about Miriam and Moses, the Ten Commandments. That covenant he made, we are married to him. It is a marriage covenant and God's instructions for creating a community. They realize 
what has been before their eyes is nothing but the destruction they caused. They caused all of the destruction. Can you see now why they're mourning and they're grieving over all of this because of the rubble of their life? They realize all the ways our ancestors broke every last one of the vows that we made. Do you remember at Mount Sinai when he gave them all of the vows and they said, we will and we do. But everything was broken. They had been wretchedly unfaithful. But it's like they're standing in a beautiful dress. This is who we are in God. This is who he wants us to be. And they feel crushed under the weight of their infidelity. How could they not weep? And they're going to weep and mourn. Great sorrow and weeping, Nehemiah 8 tells us, when they heard God's word and they realized how far they have strayed from the teaching of God's word. Many of us have strayed far from the teaching of God's word. Many of us may have been faithful for a while and we were dedicated and we got sidetracked. And we got off. And when we came back, believe me, there was mourning, there was grieving and repentance. Over the years, maybe the months that we spent not being in service to him. And Nehemiah says, Quit weeping. This day, this day that you're coming back, the repentance, everything that you have, you're being restored. This day is holy to God and more not. Don't weep because the people are weeping when they hear the words of the law. So look at the response here. Conviction, should it bring grief in my life? It should. They're conscious of their own failure and sin, and they're cut to the heart, and they weep over their sin. I've told you when, uh, after Laura came, after she went, and I got myself right with the Lord where he wanted me to be, it's like I went through, I don't know, months of Roto-Rooter. A lot of weeping. A lot of repentance. That's how it should affect you especially if you've been away from him. Cut to the heart. So this is the water gate. The word of God is coming alive. It is speaking to you. It's doing its work in you. That's what it is. That's the difference in this. And the old gate, the old gate's just this written word of God. The water gate is when it comes alive in you. And it's making a difference in you. It's changing you, and it speaks directly into your hearts. You hear it, you obey it, and it says you will be blessed, and you will be fully satisfied in all of your circumstances. That's a great promise, but we have to be obedient. Now, it says in Romans 3, 20, it says no one is justified by working of the law. No, rather the law, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. That's what the purpose of the law. So here are the Israelites, much like you and me when we come to this place in our life. The Israelites' initial unraveling mirrors how we feel when, God, I have failed you again and again and again. That's how we feel, just like them. 
Our shame echoes in our hearts when we realize I've been too tired, I've been too busy for God to get my true attention in a good long while, like he's some vacation scrapbook that we keep half complete in the basement. I'm sure he feels that way sometimes in our lives. So let's look at letter C. What's God's response to them mourning and grieving? This is his stricken and ashamed wife. God's still committed. His mercies are new every morning. And he says, I'm still committed to you because of the commitment I made to you and my love for you. This is God's posture before his people that are repentant and they're weeping. Nehemiah tells them twice. The Levites are going to come through and tell them again, be still. This day, that day right there is holy and don't be grieved. It's not the day of the Lord that's going to come in judgment at the second coming. That's not the day he's talking about, that future time of judgment. This is your day in history. This is the day you renewed yourself, and this is the day you repented and you came back. This is great for our prodigals, right? This is what we want to see in them. This is your day in history, the day the exiles gathered as a returned people. Their hearts are broken. They are responding to God's word as it's being preached. The day God reaffirmed to them, you're still my chosen people. You're still my chosen people. I'm still your God. Do you see the mercy? The mercy of our God. Faithful to his promises, faithful to his commitments. That is the joy that imparts strength to me. That's the context of the phrase, the joy of the Lord is my strength. It's this day is holy. I've come back. He is faithful. He's restoring me. That's the joy of the Lord. That's my strength. God declared through his law and his leaders, I love and I delight in my people. That is a joy that imparts strength to you and me. No matter how many times I fail him, is he faithful to me? That's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. He's fully aware of what had transpired for centuries, but his commitment is steadfast. His promises we can count on. In Jeremiah, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. So it's a time of restoration, not only of the ruined city, but of obedience to God's law. They're going to rejoice and celebrate now because they've been restored. Remember, they've been exiles. And now he's restoring them. You're still my people. So number one, we're going to see three things that this joy is based on, the joy of the Lord. Number one, it's based on forgiveness. No matter what I have done, there's absolute acceptance before God because of the death of his son. Because we come back and we're repentant. Keep in mind the context here, how, what's been their attitude when they come back? Repent mourning, grieving. All right. Nehemiah could have agreed with their self-condemnation. Have y'all ever gone through self-condemnation? 
Yeah, but he said you stop grieving. He doesn't want you staying in that frame of mind. Are you forgiven? Yes, claim 1 John 1, 9. If I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me, and he will cleanse me. Praise God. And you keep going. You don't sit in the pit because you have failed him. God's word wasn't to condemn us. It's to reconcile us back to him. So God's word is for life and joy. This is something that we cannot earn. It's a gift. Forgiveness is God's greatest gift because it will meet our greatest need. We need to be forgiven. Because do we sin and fail him? It goes on and on till our last breath. Forgiveness is a gift. Accept it. It says in Romans 8, 1, there, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh. How are you walking? After the Spirit. And I'm promised if I will walk in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lust of my flesh. Now, after confession and forgiveness, so we're still in Nehemiah 8, God says, I want to replace your grief and sorrow. And he said, I want gladness and joy in you. That's the joy of the Lord. Yes, and that's exactly what he did for me, even though my circumstance didn't change for 10 years. After he, we had the Roto-Rooter session for weeks, and then the grief and the sorrow, he said, it's done. Put an end to it. And then I want to restore you. I want to give you that peace. I want to give you that joy, even in the midst of your circumstance. So if we go to 2 Corinthians, in this city, in the church, there was a brother that committed an act of immorality. And they disciplined him with disfellowship, which is biblical. That action caused him to realize, man, this is wicked behavior. And he realized it, and he was willing to repent. <clears throat> he sorrowed over his sin. There's remorse. There's sorrow over the sin. Even though they disciplined him with disfellowship, that something happened here. I said that. Okay. Paul instructs them to accept. If he's repented and he has sorrowed over his sin, you accept him back and you comfort him before his sorrow can become destructive in his life. Because the sorrow he has felt is punishment enough. And I go back, this hit me this morning when I was going over this. Laura came back. And the first time she came to Bible study over in the activities building, and those of you that were over there and had been with me for a while, you knew the story, you knew how we had prayed for her and everything. She was grieving over her life and all the destruction. But she walked in that morning, and the ladies that were there embraced her because she was repentant. They loved her, presented her with $1,600 to start buying new clothes. That's what you do when a person that has been out here comes back with a repentant spirit and you know they have repented and they're full of grief and remorse. You embrace them and you comfort them. You encourage them so it is not become destructive. 
because Satan works on her all the time, wanting to bring up her old life and what she was like. She needs people here that encourage her, that comfort them, to comfort her because Satan's working hard. She told me the other day, she said, sometimes I go through so much self-hatred because of what she did to us, you know, and so forth for all those years. But let me tell you, when she walked in that activities building that morning, and she will say in her testimony, she said, I've never been loved by Christian women like I was that day. And many of you still support her, you encourage her, and believe me, she's on the forefront of a raging battle. And she needs the encouragement. So, I'm just throwing that in. Now, on the contrary, you forgive these people and you comfort them lest somehow one would be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And you can see how somebody like Laura, they could just... and what their life had been and how they had failed God. No, stop. In order that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. Because we're not ignorant of his schemes. Satan relishes a Christian who is in despair over their sins. He wants you to just stay in it and wallow in it. He wants to keep bringing it up. But when a Christian lacks spiritual comfort and joy, the deceiver's rejoicing because you are under the thumb of Satan. You're under his thumb. And it tells us in Revelation 12, he's the accuser of the brethren, and he wants to snatch the peace and joy from my soul. And he whispers poison things in your ear, like to some of you that have prodigals, like he did to me. It will never change. They'll never come back to God. It's always going to be this way. Those are some of the lies he will whisper in your ears. The enemy will use my spirit of brokenness. And he told me many times, it's no use. She's never going to come back. It's always going to be this way. He works on Laura and says, it's no use. Forget it. You're hopeless. So she still struggles. God will never be pleased with you. You're a spiritual loser because you've messed up too many times. That's not what this book says. The enemy will tell you that. So look at the nature of God's forgiveness. He remembers my sins no more. He says, I've removed them as far as the east is from the west. That's Psalm 34 if you need a reference. He cast our sins into the sea of his forgetfulness, never to be remembered again. That is. Now, you and I are going to the judgment seat, correct? But I am not going to be judged for my sins. They're done. They won't be brought up. What am I going to be judged on? My behavior, my obedience, my sanctification, my soul. Not judged on my spirit or my body. It's my soul that's going up for review. Am I allowing the Holy Spirit to change me into the image of Jesus Christ? Am I being conformed to that image? Am I becoming sanctified? Don't let Satan drag up before your mind that which God has put away forever. Because he will. I think I heard that somewhere. Yes. 
True conviction from the Holy Spirit. If it's coming from the Holy Spirit, it will bring you to the end of your own strength. You've been trying really hard. And the Holy Spirit, if he's convicting you like he did me, you come to the end of your rope. That's what he did with me. I can't control this. I can't fix it. I don't know what to do about it. That's where he wants us. Here it is. And I discover all the infinite resources I have in Jesus Christ. Because that's my identity. And this is what I have in Christ. His victory, his hope, his purity. I have his peace. I have his wisdom. Everything he is, I have it. That is an amazing truth that we do not use. We don't. So, do I need a strength of his that is enduring? Not just a little increase in my power for a moment. I need his stamina, his strength to endure my entire life. He has infinite resources to meet my every need. And he doesn't just give me what I need. He is what I need. I need him. Now, do y'all know this little chorus? We're going to sing. We're going to sing for just a few minutes because this little chorus came to my mind. It's very simple. So if you know it, sing it with me and we'll sing it a second time. All right? He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. He satisfies my needs supply. Jesus is all I need. Again. He's all I need. He's all I need. Jesus is all I need. He satisfies my needs supply. Jesus is all I need. Amen. Yes, great little chorus, simple. You can sing it around the house. If you forget, you can go listen online. You are now online. So the joy of the Lord is a power that produces in each one of us a successful, victorious, fruit-bearing Christian. That's what we are supposed to be, and the power in us can make that happen. So number two, we had a joy based on forgiveness. Now we have a joy based on obedience. It is not dependent on my successful Christian service. Praise God. Now, did the Jews still have a lot of work to do? Yes. So they need the joy of the Lord for their strength. And he says in verse 14, he said, they found written in the law, the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses, the children of Israel, we're supposed to go dwell in a booth during the feast of the seventh month, and you're supposed to announce and proclaim it at all the cities in Jerusalem. Go to the mountains, get olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of leafy trees, and you're going to make a booth. This is the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written. And what did they do? They have heard, they, are, they understood, they've rejoiced, and they're obeying, and now they're going to go do what the Word says. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity, you have all these people, we're going to go make a booth. And we're going to sit in that booth, and it was for a week. 
according to the Feast of Tabernacles. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel, they had not observed this. And there was very great gladness. So it says, Nehemiah 8.18, day by day, from the first day to the last, he read in the book of the law, and they kept this feast seven days, and it was so wonderful, they wanted to do it another week. Did when they had a revival. So they lived in their booth for seven days. They're celebrating. Do y'all remember why they did the Feast of Tabernacles? Remember, we thank God for the past, his care of them in the wilderness. We thank him for the harvest today, and we're thanking you for that kingdom that's coming because that's going to be an awesome time of a thousand years. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Celebrate that future glorious kingdom that God promised them. So here's what's been going on in chapter 8. Did I understand God's word? They did. So did they rejoice in the word? Yes, and now they're ready to obey. That has affected my mind, my will, and my emotions. That's affecting my soul. And that's what's happening to them in chapter 8. And it says, And there was very great gladness, because when you hear the word of God and you obey it, you are going to be blessed, and now you will be fully satisfied no matter your circumstance. That's awesome. Now, speaking of my circumstance, we're going to number three. Because I can have a joy independent of my circumstance. And you think, Francine... I haven't found that joy yet. Because do, sometimes do our circumstances uh, affect whether we feel joy or not? Oh, yeah. But this says I can have joy even in the circumstance. No experience in my life can touch me except by God's permission. Do you believe that? So anything that comes into your life, he's allowed it. It's been filtered through him. We're going to look at Hebrews 12 where we have just come out of the hall of faith and all of these people from the Old Testament said, we did it and we're cheering you on. If we, if we did it, you can too. So we have this cloud of witnesses. It says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us. And here is our key. We look at Jesus. Did he run a race here on earth? He absolutely did, and he showed us how to do it. So we keep our eyes fixed on him, and here is the key to having joy in your circumstance. He, for the joy that was set before him. Okay, what was the joy set before him? Is he going to be able to bring many sons to glory? Is he purchasing a bride? Yes, he's doing all of this. Is he going to have a place at the right hand of the Father? Is he going to have his kingdom? He's got wonderful joy to look forward to. He's going to be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The joy that's set before him. Think about the joy that is set before you. When you take your last breath here, you and I have a kingdom that he wants us to rule and reign in with him. He's got all kinds of things that will be going on. He's, we'll be in a glorified body. This has never happened. We get to be first. And I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but I know that when he was glorified and had his resurrected body, they recognized him, they ate, he ate, 
and he talked to them, etc. So that gives us some clues about what a glorified body will be. And there will be people in their flesh and blood body, but we will be in a glorified body. Now that's going to be, it, it may not seem strange at all, because that will be what's supposed to happen, I guess. But anyway, and we are promised in uh, Revelation 3, the church to Laodicea, us. He says, if you will overcome that complacency, all of that stuff he's brought against them, you will reign and rule with me on my throne. That You need to keep this stuff in front of you. When you get down and discouraged, get out your joy thing. Get focused. I'm supposed to have joy because of what's ahead of me. That was him. The joy that was set before him, he was able to endure the cross. He despised the shame, and now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God because in Psalm 2, he was promised a kingdom. So he's going, is he relying on the promises of the Father? Absolutely. We need to keep our focus on our future. The secret of his joy, he said, I only came to do what the Father sent me to do. And in Hebrews, he said, I'm going to be able to bring many sons to glory. I've got a future kingdom. So you endure now. The one thing that matters in any type of service, you're doing the will of God and you're obedient to his word and the power of his spirit. The joy of the Lord is the gladness in my heart that comes from I know God, I'm abiding in Christ, and I'm filled with his spirit. And the joy comes. Oh, we got, we got to go through testing. Our favorite subject, right? Oh, it, we're supposed to. Let's listen to James and Peter's words about testing. It's woven into the pattern of every Christian's life. It's part of God's will in every believer, and you should not seek to get out of it. Don't get out of the fire. Learn what he, see what he wants you to learn in the fire because he's always got a purpose. Whatever God permits in my life, he will give me power to see it through when I am obedient at the dung gate and give him that surrendered vessel. Now, the question is, Lord, what do you want me to learn? What do you want me to learn in this trial that I am in? How can I find joy in the midst of all these trials? So we're going to go to James and start with him. And I know we've used these scriptures quite a bit, but we've got a lot of them in one spot. So when you've got a trial, you can go to this page of this lesson, and they're all right there for you. And he said, brothers, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations. Do you see your command? I don't see many heads shaking. We see the command. I am to count it all joy when I fall into divers' temptations. Know this, the trying of my faith is going to work patience or endurance. If I let him do the work in me and I surrender to him in this trial. Do I need endurance to run my race? And the trials, him working in me, will give me the endurance. He says, let endurance have its perfect or complete result so that you will be perfect or complete or mature and you will lack nothing. That is the very first thing James writes in his letter after he said a little greeting. This is the first thing he tells the people that he's writing to. Now, many Christians think once they 
made a decision for Jesus Christ, I am bound for heaven and life's going to be a bowl of cherries. Now, I thought that as a kid. You didn't? Okay. Everything's going to fall into place and life will be that proverbial bowl of cherries. Now, here we are. I've got trials and tribulations. Some are not as bad as others. Some are fiery. Some are dark pits. How can I possibly endure these circumstances and be obedient to consider it joy? Well, here's my little baby looking, you know, bent over back through. This is what that word means. It's an it's a accounting term, and we have to look at things from a different mindset. Lord, you've, you've given me a transgender child at age 25. I have to count it differently. I have to look at it from a different mindset, and I had to make a decision after weighing all the facts and the circumstances. So this is from the Phillips translation, that same verse, and I like the Phillips on it. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your life, don't resent them as an intruder. What are we saying? Oh, welcome, friend. I've been expecting you. This is, a, this is biblical. Welcome, friend. I've been expecting you because you have come to test my faith and you are going to produce in me the quality of endurance. That's our attitude. It is biblical. Do I need to say this again? Now, all these various trials are coming to test my faith. But, oh, God, that testing, when I respond correctly and just give it all to you and surrender to you, this testing will prove endurance in me. And it, uh, it proves perseverance in me. And what's the result? I'm growing in Christ. My maturity is growing. I'm being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And when I show up at the judgment seat, it will be worth it. That's what we're going to hear about our evaluation. Paul says in Romans 5, we're going to rejoice in our sufferings, and probably nobody ever suffered as much as he did. No human. And he says, because I know the suffering is going to produce endurance or patience. The endurance is going to produce character in me, and character will produce hope. I rejoice in my inflictions. In Ephesians, he says, Paul said, I pray you will be strengthened in your inner man. That strength comes from the Holy Spirit. Endurance is the ability I can undergo a period of stress and strain with the inner strength of Jesus Christ. That time with Laura was 10 years. A lot of stress, a lot of strain. But God provided peace. He provided joy. And he, I just felt assured that at some point, she was going to come back to him. And that sustains you. And he promises that he will do it. Endurance, you look squarely in the face of a discouraging circumstance. I know many of you get discouraged because you're prodigal. You don't see God working. But I promise you, he is. He's working behind the scenes even when you don't know it. And you can look squarely in the face of this discouraging circumstance. No despair. No despair, because what happens if I allow myself to be in despair over my prodigal or over my circumstance? No growth. 
If I'm sitting in the pit, if I am discouraged and in depression, there is no growth in my life going on. It does not promote. Francine, are you being transformed in the image of Christ? Not if I'm despairing over all my circumstance. It doesn't promote thanksgiving and praise and worship. I don't feel like it. Sometimes you need to get in the Word, start singing, Jesus is all I need. And it will lift you out of that. If I'm in despair, there will be no victory over the temptations and trials in my life. We cannot be in despair because of our circumstances. In endurance, I act like it's already done, even though I don't see it. It's already done. Do you see it yet? No. Just like the Egyptians standing, like the Israelites standing on the shore of the Red Sea. He said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Wait, do you see all those Egyptians back here? You stand still and you believe it by faith, even though you don't see it yet. That's endurance. Now, adverse circumstances, instead of hindering my faith, they can actually enhance my joy. Enhance it. I'll be more joyful. Look at Paul and Silas. They knew adversity. Their feet are, they sat with uh, their feet in stocks in a Philippian jail cell. Their legal rights had been violated. They had been arrested without cause and beaten without a trial. What are they doing at midnight? Singing. Singing. Did it enhance their joy? Their circumstance enhanced their joy. And that's what they're doing. The apostles were in Jerusalem. They were arrested twice and ordered, you'd better quit preaching in Jesus' name. The second time they faced the court, they were beaten. Unfazed, they went back home. And what did they do? They were joyful. And it says they departed from the presence of the council and rejoiced, we are worthy. We're worthy to suffer for his name. That's enhanced joy. And it says, and then they, they didn't stop, and they went and proclaimed the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They just went right back out and kept going. I have a, a part of a sermon from Spurgeon, and I've given you the words, but it's very meaningful for what we're talking about today. He says, you look at a weather-beaten sailor, and I have a picture of one. The man who is at home on the sea he has a bronzed face and mahogany-colored flesh. He looks as tough as a heart of oak and as hardy as if he were made of iron. How different from us, the poor landsman. How did he become so accustomed to hardship, so able to breast the storm, storm so that he does not care whether the wind blows southwest or northwest? He can go out to sea in any kind of weather because he has his sea legs on. How did he come to this strength? Because he did business in great waters. He could not have become a hardy seaman tearing on the shore. Now, trials work in the saints, that spiritual hardihood which cannot be learned if we're just in ease all the time. Now, you may go to school forever, but you cannot learn endurance there. You may color your cheeks with paint, but you cannot give them that ingrained brown that comes of stormy seas and howling winds. To reach that condition of firm endurance and sacred hardihood is worth all the expense of all your heaped up troubles that ever come upon us from above 
or from beneath. When trials work patience, we are incalculably, incalculably rich, enriched. I should have practiced that word. The Lord gives us more of this choice grace of his. As Peter's fish had the money in his mouth, so do sanctified trials have spiritual riches if we endure them graciously. Sooner or later, the truth is going to be that God, he's exercising his child. Any child that's consecrated to him in the ways of adult godliness, so their power of resistance might grow greater and their character as men of God will become stronger. You can consider each trial joy. You can greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory even when you feel like you're face first in the mud puddle. And I'm sure all of you have been there. We all have. You can endure whatever circumstances are making you quake in your boots right now. Have you been saved through faith in Jesus Christ? You've got all you need. Grab onto God's joy. May we all remember to thank God for the thorns in my life so he can turn all my sorrows into joy. And that's exactly what he's done with my thorns 10 years with Laura. It has been turned into a joy that I can't even explain. And a ministry has been birthed out of it. We experience a power that can transform sorrow into joy. And you know what? Nothing can take it away. There's a song about that. This joy that I have in the world can't take it away. We can't work this up. This joy has to come from that strength that is within us. It's imparted to me when I become filled with the Holy Spirit. When I become filled with the Holy Spirit, remember, I'm at the dung gate. And he cleanses. He's got a surrendered vessel. And I'm yielded to him. And what happens? He begins to fill me. And I begin to live that spirit-filled life. And this is really a, a, a point you might want to make here. The fruit of the spirit. Notice where joy is. It's in between love and peace. And they're in order. The fruit of the spirit is love. And then I get his joy and I'm in peace. And it goes on. Now, let him fill you because then your joy will be as natural as breathing no matter what your circumstance is. The joy of the Lord will be revealed to others through you. When you're in a hard circumstance, people should be able to look at you and see the joy of the Lord. Even though you're in a pit. It should be coming through to other people. Peter, oh boy, Peter. He says, in this you're going to greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you get distressed by various trials. And remember, when you study, you're going to greatly rejoice in this. And you ask yourself the question, what is this? Thank you. So you have to back up a few verses to see what this is. What am I rejoicing in? Go to verse 3. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, I've got a new birth. I have a living hope because of the resurrection of the dead from Jesus Christ. And he says, you have an inheritance. This is what I'm rejoicing in. 
I have an inheritance. It's undefiled. It's fading not. It's reserved in heaven. It has my name on it. You have one too. Now, it's being kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Look at the next phrase. There's a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Wait, my spirit's born again. My body is what's left? My soul. My mind, will, and emotions that is supposed to be being saved and sanctified now while I live on this earth. So this is what you're rejoicing in. I may have various trials, but I've got a new birth. I have a living hope. I have an inheritance. That's what I'm rejoicing in. The trial of your faith is going to be tried with fire, but we want it to be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. Now, though you have not seen him, you love him, correct? And though you do not see him now, do you still believe in him? Yes. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, don't keep, keep reading. You will obtain as the outcome of your faith. The goal of your faith now is the salvation of your soul. Now, you might want to really absorb that. The goal of my faith now, the salvation of my soul. So we see God's word speaking in Nehemiah. It affected their mind. It affected their heart. And they were mourning and weeping. And then it affected their will. And they went out and they got their booth and they set it up and they lived in them. And they celebrated that future kingdom that would be coming. You and I, my whole being, body, soul, and spirit, must be captive to God's truth. And I've just shown you how in Nehemiah 8... Those three festivals and the Word of God being read will affect your mind, your emotions, and your will. That's your soul. So if you look up here just a minute, this is really, uh, I think this will illustrate it graphically. In Nehemiah 8, there were three responses, and it hit three different parts of my soul. When I understand God's Word, and they did, what does it affect in me? My mind. Then they rejoiced in God's word. What part of their soul did it affect? Their emotions. And then when I obey God's word, what has it affected in my soul? My will. Has God's word in the reading of it and me responding to it and obeying it, has my soul been affected? Yes. And he goes on to say, oh, I have to wait for this. My soul is what's affected here. Now listen to Paul's prayer. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And he says, I want your whole spirit, I want your soul, and I want your body, all three parts of you, to be presented blameless at the coming of Jesus Christ. Y'all see that? That's his prayer. All of us, all three parts, and my soul has three parts. My mind, my will, my emotions. And so I love this passage in Acts 20. This is the prayer for all of us. I commend you to God and to this word, the word of his grace. This is able to build you up. This will sanctify you completely. And this will give you your inheritance among all the saints that are sanctified. It's the sanctification of my soul. I've understood God's word. I responded to it. I've obeyed it. 
my soul is being sanctified, this word will do it. And when my soul is sanctified, this will give me my inheritance. Praise God for that. Let's pray.